0: ...which actually reached me, along with most of the church in the early 1970s, called everything into question. Jesus freaks appeared on the scene. No longer were Jesus followers well-scrubbed representatives of the middle class. Some were unkempt, disheveled radicals. Liberation theologians began enshrining Jesus in posters, along with Fidel Castro and Che Guevara. In 1971, I first saw the movie The Gospel According to St. Matthew directed by Italian filmmaker Pier Paolo Pasolini. Its release had scandalized not only the religious establishment, who barely recognized the Jesus on screen, but also the film community, who knew Pasolini as an outspoken homosexual and Marxist. After being trapped in an enormous traffic jam during a papal visit to Florence, Pasolini had picked up a copy of the New Testament from the bedside table in his hotel room and read through Matthew. What he discovered in those pages so startled him that he determined to make a film using no text but the actual words from Matthew's Gospel. Pasolini's film captures well the reappraisal of Jesus that took place in the 1960s. Shot in southern Italy on a tight budget, it recreates in chalky whites and dusty grays something of the Palestinian surroundings Jesus lived in. The Pharisees wear towering headpieces and Herod's soldiers faintly resemble fascist soldiers. The disciples act like bumbling raw recruits, but Jesus himself, with a steady gaze and a piercing intensity, seems fearless. The parables and other sayings he fires in clipped phrases over his shoulders as he dashes from place to place. The impact of Pasolini's film can only be understood by one who passed through adolescence during that tumultuous period. Back then, it had the power to hush scoffing crowds at art theaters. Student radicals realized that they were not the first to proclaim a message that was jarringly anti-materialistic, anti-hypocritical, pro-peace, and pro-love. For me, the film helped to force a disturbing reevaluation of my image of Jesus. Those in authority, whether religious or political, regarded him as a troublemaker, a disturber of the peace. He spoke and acted like a revolutionary, scorning fame, family, property, and other traditional measures of success. I could not dodge the fact that the words in Pasolini's film were taken entirely from Matthew's Gospel, and their message clearly did not fit my prior concept of Jesus. When I switched on my computer this morning, Microsoft Windows flashed the date, implicitly acknowledging that whatever else you may believe about it, The birth of Jesus was so important that it split history into two parts. Everything that has ever happened on this planet falls into a category of before Christ or after Christ. President Richard Nixon got carried away with excitement in 1969 when Apollo astronauts first landed on the moon. It's the greatest day since creation, crowed the president, until Billy Graham solemnly reminded him of Christmas and Easter, By any measure of history, Graham was right. This Galilean, who in his lifetime spoke to fewer people than would fill just one of the many stadia that Graham has filled, changed the world more than any other person. He introduced a new force field into history, and now he holds the allegiance of a third of all people on earth. And yet I am not writing about Jesus because he's a great man who changed history. I am drawn to Jesus, irresistibly because he positions himself as the dividing point of life, my life. I tell you, whoever acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will also acknowledge him before the angels of God, Jesus said. According to him, what I think about him and how I respond will determine my destiny for all eternity. Sometimes I accept Jesus' audacious claim without question, Sometimes, I confess, I wonder what difference it should make to my life that a man lived 2,000 years ago in a place called Galilee. Modern scholarship muddies the picture. There you may encounter Jesus as a political revolutionary, as a magician, as a Galilean charismatic, a rabbi, a peasant Jewish cynic, a Pharisee, an anti-Pharisee Essene, a prophet, a hippie, and as the leader of a sacred mushroom cult. Serious scholars write these works with very little sign of embarrassment. In the midst of such confusion, how do we answer the simple question, who was Jesus? Secular history gives few clues. Before beginning this project, I spent months reading about Jesus. The sheer volume of scholarship had a numbing effect on me, and any true-to-life image receded into a fuzzy, indistinct blur. Yet at the same time, whenever I return to the Gospels, the fog seemed to lift. Some religious books have about them the sour smell of propaganda, but not the Gospels. Odd, unpredictable scenes show up, such as Jesus' family and neighbors trying to put him away under suspicion of insanity. Why include that if you're writing propaganda? Jesus' followers come off as scratching their heads in wonderment. Who is this guy? More baffled than conspiratorial. To a remarkable degree, the Gospels throw the decision back to the reader. They operate more like a whodunit detective story. I found fresh energy in this quality of the Gospels. The more I studied Jesus, the more difficult it became to pigeonhole him. He said little about the Roman occupation, which was the main topic of conversation of his countrymen, and yet he took up a whip to drive petty profiteers from the temple. He urged obedience to the Jewish law while somehow acquiring the reputation as a lawbreaker. He could be stabbed by sympathy for a stranger, yet turn on his best friend with the flinted rebuke. Get behind me, Satan! He had uncompromising views on rich men and loose women, yet both types enjoyed his company. One day miracles seemed to flow out of Jesus. The next day his power was blocked by people's lack of faith. One day he talked in detail of the second coming, another he knew neither the day nor hour. He fled from arrest at one point and marched inexorably toward it at another. He spoke eloquently about peacemaking and then he told his disciples to procure swords. His extravagant claims about himself kept him at the center of controversy, but when he did something truly miraculous, he tended to hush it up. As Walter Wink has said, If Jesus had never lived, we would not have been able to invent him. I hope, as far as is possible, to look at Jesus' life from below, as a spectator, one of the many who followed him around. If I were a filmmaker, given $50 million and no script but the gospel's text, what kind of film would I make? I hope, in Luther's words, to draw Christ as deep as possible into the flesh. I will attempt to tell the story of Jesus, not my own story. And yet, inevitably, a search for Jesus turns out to be one's own search. No one who meets Jesus ever stays the same. Birth, the visited planet. In the birth stories of Luke and Matthew, only one person seems to grasp the mysterious nature of what God has set in motion. It's the old man Simeon who recognized the baby as the Messiah and instinctively understood that conflict would surely follow. This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against, he said. And then he made the prediction that a sword would pierce Mary's own soul. Somehow Simeon sensed that though on the surface little had changed, the autocrat Herod still ruled, Roman troops were still stringing up patriots, Jerusalem still overflowed with beggars. Underneath, everything had changed. A new force had arrived to undermine powers in the world. After reading the birth stories once more, I asked myself, if Jesus came to reveal God to us, then what do I learn about God from that first Christmas? The word associations that come to mind as I ponder that question take me by surprise. Humble, approachable, underdog, courageous. These hardly seem appropriate words to apply to deity. Humble. Before Jesus, almost no pagan author had used humble as a compliment. Yet the events of Christmas point to what at first seems like an oxymoron, a humble God. The God who came to earth came not in a raging whirlwind nor in a devouring fire. God's visit to earth took place humbly in an animal shelter with no attendants present and nowhere to lay the newborn king but a feed trough. Approachable. Those of us raised in a tradition of informal or private prayer may not appreciate the change that Jesus wrought in how human beings approach God. In most religious traditions, in fact, fear is the primary emotion when one approaches God. In truth, fear had never worked very well. The Old Testament includes far more low points than high ones. A new approach was needed, a new covenant to use the words of the Bible, one that would not emphasize the vast gulf between God and humanity, but instead would span it. Underdog. I wince even as I say the word, especially in connection with Jesus. It's a crude word, probably derived from dogfighting and applied over time to predictable losers and victims of injustice. Yet as I read the birth stories about Jesus, I cannot help but conclude that though the world may be tilted toward the rich and powerful, God is tilted toward the underdog. Growing up, Jesus' sensibilities were affected most deeply by the poor the powerless, the oppressed, in short, the underdogs. Since God arranged the circumstances in which to be born on planet Earth, without power or wealth, without rights, without justice, his preferential options speak for themselves. Courageous. In 1993, I read a news report about a Messiah sighting in the Crown Heights section of Brooklyn, New York. Rabbi Menachem Mendel, 91 years old, mute from a stroke, was claiming to be the Messiah. When I first read the news account, I nearly laughed out loud. Who are these people trying to kid? It was a response that Jesus received throughout his life. It took courage, I believe, for God to lay aside power and glory and to take a place among human beings who would greet him with the same mixture of haughtiness and skepticism that I felt when I first heard about Rabbi Mendel of Brooklyn. It took courage to risk descent to a planet known for its clumsy violence, among a race known for rejecting its prophets. What more foolhardy thing could God have done? God, who knows no before or after, entered time and space. God, who knows no boundaries, took on the shocking confines of a baby's skin, The Ominous Restraints of Mortality. Background Jewish Roots and Soil As a boy growing up in a WASP community in Atlanta, Georgia, I did not know a single Jew. I pictured Jews as foreigners with thick accents and strange hats who lived in Brooklyn or some such faraway place where they all studied to become psychiatrists and musicians. I knew the Jews had something to do with World War II, but I had heard very little about the Holocaust. Certainly these people had no relation to my Jesus. Not until my early twenties did I befriend a Jewish photographer who disabused me of many of my notions about his race. One night when we stayed up late talking, he described what it was like to lose 27 members of his family to the Holocaust. Later he acquainted me with Elie Wiesel, Chaim Potach, Martin Buber, and other Jewish writers. And after these encounters, I began reading the New Testament through new eyes. How could I have missed it? Jesus' true blue Jewishness leaps out from Matthew's very first sentence, which introduces him as the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew opens his gospel, not as I might be tempted to begin, with a teaser on how this book will change your life, but rather with a dry list of names, the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chose a representative sampling from 42 generations of Jews in order to establish Jesus' royal bloodline. Much like the shabby descendants of deposed European royalty, the peasant family of Joseph and Mary could trace their lineage back to some impressive ancestors, including Israel's greatest king, David, and its original founder, Abraham. Jesus grew up during a time of resurgent Jewish pride. In a backlash against the pressure to embrace Greek culture, families had recently begun adopting names that harked back to the times of the patriarchs and the exodus from Egypt. Jesus' own name comes from the word Joshua. He shall save, a common name in those days. The idea that an ordinary person with a name like Jesus could be the Son of God and Savior of the world